In the 1930s, New York's prominent mafia was under the control of Charles Lucky Luciano. But when he was out of the picture, there was one question. Who would take over power? Lucky Luciano used Vito Genovese as his intimidator. He also used Frank Costello as his diplomat. Luciano would use intimidation if he had to, but if he preferred Costello's approach. But he would use intimidation. No one wanted the job more than Genovese, but it went to Costello, who quickly became a prominent member of society. Frank Costello was unusual as an as a organized crime figure or a mafia figure, whatever you want to call him. Uh, in that, he fashioned himself as a non-gangster. He fashioned himself as a businessman, uh, sometimes bordering on aristocracy. Uh, and he would rather run with the counts and dukes and earls than he would with the capos and the tutti capis and the rest of them. Costello styled himself as the mafia prime minister. But when push came to shove, could he hold his own when it mattered? against the Senate? In the early 1950s, when a senator from the state of Tennessee was trying to make a mark, trying to make, get, some notor get some publicity, uh, launched hearings. His name was Estes Kefova. He launched hearings into actually gambling, big-time gambling in the big cities. This is Mafia. Frank Costello was born in Italy. He arrived in East Harlem with his parents in 1900 at age four. His father ran a grocery shop, but Costello didn't want to settle for a life of poverty. His brother Edward got into the life of street crime, and Frankie soon followed suit. Selwyn Rabb is the author of Five Families. Costello, like so many other uh, mobsters, started out uh, the young man with the teenager and then people in their young 20s, street gangs, predatory street gangs, robberies, uh, knockoff, uh, passing uh, a pedestrian who he thought had a good watch on him or a wallet, a thick wallet. He shook down uh, merchants, uh, petty ante stuff. Costello did well as a petty crook, but at age 24, he made one detrimental mistake. He was arrested for carrying a gun, and he was sentenced to a year in jail. New York had a very tough uh, gun law at the time, and still does, called the Sullivan Law, which meant a long stretch in prison if you got uh, arrested with a gun on you. So he decided uh, prudence was the better part of courage and uh, avoiding sentences. So whatever he did, he didn't do with a gun. He might have batted around people, but for the most part, he was more gentlemanly and uh, more civilized. The jail time may have been short, but the event would become important later in life. From that point forward, Costello never carried a gun. Costello realized that he needed to use his brains, not bullets, to get ahead of the pack. Like so many other young mobsters in the 1920s, they saw their opportunities when uh, Prohibition came along. Somehow or other to serve the uh, American public with good booze or bad booze. In fact, he was so successful, he was pretty slick in how importing booze, transporting it, and effectively getting it to the clientele. Um, so there was a lot of dough to be made. There were a lot of presumably respectable people involved in it. And he learned business dealings that way, uh, which set him apart from being a goon. 
He would never be a kind of hitman, goon, muscle man type. He was a gentleman gangster. He was never going to be a thug. It was during the Prohibition that Costello teamed up with underworld hotshot Charles Lucky Luciano and his mismatched gang of up-and-comers. And it was there that he met Vito Genovese. Like Costello, Genovese had emigrated to the United States as a child and been in gangs from a young age. Genovese was from Naples. Genovese came over as a young man uh, to New York, grew up in the slums of New York. And from the beginning, he was involved in these what were then called street gangs, terrifying street gangs, violence ruled. And he never changed. That was the way he started, and that was the way he would end. Well, he, was always, he always believed that the uh, gun or the knife was more powerful than persuasion. So his early schooling led to his character for the rest of his life. Genovese had also spent a year in prison for firearms, but he still very much favored guns. He was colleagues with Luciano, but was employed by the mob boss Joe Masseria, where he mostly acted as an enforcer and executioner. Vito Genovese was never anything but a homicidal maniac. I mean, he was from the uh, really uh, violent school of the mafia. Killings to him were just uh, daily business. It was like turning over a page in a book of no concern. Uh, that was the way he decided he was going to get to the top. He was ruthless. He killed everybody. He even killed anybody who stood in his way. He came up uh, with a violent element, uh, cracked skulls, shook down uh, uh, merchants, uh, any way to make a buck, and if he used his fists, his gun, or a knife, he didn't care. Nobody stood in his way. Over his career, Genovese was charged with shooting a man in Queens, running down and killing a man in Brooklyn, and beating down whoever Masseria asked him to. He always had a loaded revolver tucked into his belt. Thomas Repetto is the author of American Mafia. Well, the people that he worked with uh, were prone to violence, uh, almost by definition. And he understood that murders were bad for business. Uh, and so a lot of times he could stop unnecessary murders. Breaking, uh, breaking kneecaps, uh, violence was his keynote. Murder was, his, uh, murder was just a, uh, a ritual with him, of no, no concern, he had no conscience. Nobody would get in his way. If you did, he bumped you off, or he had somebody kill you. And he had no compunction about killing anybody. One example, even in romance, he was a killer. Uh, he actually fell in love. His first wife died, and he fell in love with a cousin. And he was enamored of her. And she wouldn't get a divorce from her husband. What was Vito's uh, solution? You kill the husband. As simple as that. And you marry the wife. And that's what he did. So. Uh, as far as he was concerned, that was his number one uh, method of getting to the top. And it did. It worked for him. Genovese was not known for being intelligent, but someone like Luciano was good at recognizing people's talents. He soon employed Genovese as his personal hitman. Joe Coffey is a former NYPD officer. Vito Genovese rose to the top by intimidation, but also by being allowed to rise to the top by intimidation. And the guy who allowed him to do that was Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano used Vito Genovese as his intimidator. And he knew by being close to Luciano, which he was, 
He carried, don't forget, Luciano may have been, looked very cultivated, but he, he needed hitmen. And when he needed hitmen, one of the first people he turned to was Vito Genovese, because he knew Genovese would carry it out or had the people, the strong-eyed people who had no compunction about it. So in that sense, he moved up in the organization. Uh, so this is how he got established in the organization. Castello was more adept at using his intelligence rather than violence to establish himself. By the 1930s, Frank Costello was known to the underworld as King of the Slots. His illegal one-armed bandit machines were grossing $500,000 a day. In New York, he had thousands of slot machines. Same kind of machines you now see in gambling casinos in America and elsewhere in the world. You drop in a coin, or now you use a card, and if you hit the lucky, uh, the lucky sequence, you're enriched. So he made millions. A lot of it, of course, went to Luciano's pocket, too, uh, but it, it established him as a good businessman, somebody who was known as an earner, not a guy who goes out and uh, has to commit hits or violent crimes. So he was pretty powerful in that sense that he could make a lot of dough uh, for what was considered white-collar crime. And he also went into vending machines, things like that. Uh, didn't mean he didn't get his kickbacks, from what other people did in gambling or other uh, racketeering, and he liked labor racketeering too. So in that sense, he was the more modern gangster. Frank Costello personified it. He was emblematic, dressed well, acted very courteously, no loud voices, uh, never any confrontation with the police. He avoided arrest. All he was interested in was his outward appearance and making money and surviving. Costello was the very picture of a well-to-do gangster. Learning from Rothstein like his contemporaries, he wanted nothing more than to rub shoulders with the upper establishment. Well, Frank Costello was unusual as a, as a organized crime figure or a mafia figure, whatever you want to call him, uh, in that he fashioned himself as a non-gangster. He fashioned himself as a businessman, uh, sometimes bordering on aristocracy. Uh, and he would rather run with the counts and dukes and earls than he would with the capos and the tutti capis and the rest of them. He'd like to be remembered as a member of the business community and, and an art patron. That was his act. He mixed with politicians, congressmen, journalists, authors, judges, cops, and city councilors, and soon became known as the Prime Minister of the Underworld. With his connections, Costello developed a reputation as the boss who could bridge the legitimate world and the mob. Frank Costello was called the Prime Minister because he was, that, that, that title was given to him by the media, by the newspapers and television, what have you. And the reason for that is that they likened, they likened him to our English ancestry in this country, where the famous Prime Minister of all was Winston Churchill, and they made Frank Costello the American Winston Churchill in the underworld. Thomas Trepetto. That doesn't mean that he was the boss of bosses. There was no such position, but he was first among equals and probably a little more equal than all the others. Uh, he was the one who made the political connections for the mob. He was the one who gave the shrewd advice. Uh, he was a very sharp thinker. Uh, the mob said he, he was the guy who could always figure the angles on every possible problem. So he was a man of great respect. 
and he had a lot of respectable friends. Both Castello and Genovese became more tied in with Luciano during the Castellamarese War in 1930, the war between two different factions of the mob family they all worked under. It ultimately ended when Luciano had Genovese kill boss Joe Masseria. Luciano soon took over the crime family. Genovese became his underboss, and Costello became his consigliere, his advisor. Ronald Goldstock is a former mafia investigator. There are two models for mob bosses. One is the, the, the traditional that fly below the radar, that recognize that they are criminals and they're only going to operate in the underworld. There are others who want to move past the underworld, be accepted by society, um, be viewed as something different than just a thug. Lucky Luciano used Vito Genovese as his intimidator. He also used Frank Costello as his diplomat. Genovese, who became the heir apparent to Luciana, was not so sharp. Genovese was a real thug. Luciana would use intimidation if he had to, but he preferred Costello's approach. But he would use intimidation. For five years, Genovese served by Lucky Luciano's side, doing his dirty work without asking any questions, until one day an unexpected opportunity arose. Lucky Luciano was convicted on prostitution charges and sent to prison for 50 years. When Lucky uh, was convicted and sentenced to a long, long prison term, uh, the two competing characters were Vito Genovese and Frank Costello. Costello looked upon in his outward appearance as the gentleman gangster. And uh, Vito, he was the homicidal gangster, the nut, the maniac. No one would mess with him. Uh, but they were both, you know, profiting from all the rackets that the Luciano family had. That left the question, who would take over the family? Genovese was the underboss, so it fell to him. Thomas Repetto. Genovese was a ruthless individual, not well-liked, and he was not a pleasant man to, to work with or for. Everybody preferred Costello, uh, but you know, business is business. And when one guy fails and the other guy appears to be succeeding, because Genovese was very big in drugs and drugs was making a lot of money, whereas Costello wanted nothing to do with drugs. Then something happened that left the choice obvious. Genovese had been involved in a murder in 1934. The jury had been unable to prosecute, but now there was new evidence. But suddenly, somebody turned. There was a murder in Brooklyn, and the DA at that time in Brooklyn managed to get a squealer who implicated uh, Vito. The victim had been one of Genovese's gangsters who had demanded too big a share of a crooked card game. But only years later, just as he was about to take control of the Luciano family, did someone come forward? Vito saw that the game was up for a while in New York, and he decided the best thing to do was to scram and go back to Italy where he was a citizen. And he did so. Now, he knew he wasn't going to lose any money because what he did was he still had his own crews working in New York in gambling and uh, rac labor racketeering and uh, uh, shakedowns. So he was doing pretty well. And his new wife, and he had couriers who brought over the money to him in Italy. Well, what this did, it opened the door to Frank Costello. 
because Frank Costello's chief rival was now in Italy, and he couldn't run it. And uh, Costello could get his information, or whatever, his blessings, from Lucky Luciano, who was in prison. So Costello was now in charge. With Genovese now out of the picture, Frank Costello became an even more powerful man. He was now the head of the Luciano family, the largest mob family in America, with more than 400 soldiers beneath him. Costello easily filled Luciano's shoes and continued to add billions of dollars to the family's fortunes. Costello um, had an urge to be accepted. Um, he was unwilling just to be a mobster like, say, Vito Genovese. And the notion was that he could be in society, he could be viewed as an intelligent person who participated in um, all the kinds of things that people who had grown generationally within the United States were able to do. With the added power behind him, Costello was able to cede influence further into the heights of society, in politics and law. As far as politicians and judges and DAs and cops and the corrupt world that we lived in in those days, Frank Costello was the man behind all of it. He didn't just know judges and, and DAs and politicians, he bought them. And he was the original corrupter. No question about that, that was documented a thousand times. And the man was an absolute corrupter. Costello was a great camouflage. He showed you how powerful and how venomous the mafia could be. He corrupted judges, he corrupted politicians. In effect, for almost 15 years, from the, uh, from the late 1930s into the 1950s, he ran the most powerful Democratic Party organization in New York, something called Tammany Hall, which had its headquarters in Manhattan. Before you could run or be appointed, you had to have it cleared through Frank Costello. Mayor, potential mayoral candidates in the Democratic Party went to see him hat in hand, asking for his blessings because he was so powerful. One of the most important political figures that was in his bag was a mayor who was elected twice as mayor of New York, Bill O'Dwyer, a former DA, who was so indebted to Costello that he, went, he had to ask for his endorsement. When the mafia gets control of your political and judicial system, you might say, hey, what are they doing? Gambling, who cares? Even prostitution. But when they're running your political organizations, when they're deciding uh, what bills are passed, they're deciding how justice is meted out, then you're in danger. And that's why Frank Costello, really, even though he dressed well, looked civilized, looked cultivated, was one of the most dangerous mafiosi in American history. Through the late 30s and World War II, Costello continued to flourish as mob boss and build his reputation among mobsters and citizens alike. After World War II, Luciano was deported to Italy and mostly out of the picture. Now there was no one who would dispute that Costello was the real head of the crime family. Except Genovese came back into the picture. And he was finally brought back to the United States by an intrepid army sergeant who, uh, against the advice or orders of his superiors, arrested Genovese. He had to get the British army to help him because the Americans wouldn't. Genovese was brought back to New York to face the murder charge he had been arrested for. 
but the years in Italy had only strengthened his resolve, and he had no intention of going to prison. On January 16, 1945, the witness against Genovese, Peter Latempa, complained that he was suffering from a gallstone problem. He was given pills from the guards. But the pills were not painkillers. Uh, then the inevitable happened in New York. The witness uh, died in pr prison. Uh, they said he had swallowed enough poison to kill eight horses. Without the witness, there was no case against Genovese. He was acquitted and free to walk the streets of America once again. Now in the clear, he was free to focus on securing his own position in the Luciano family. That position? boss. But Costello was thriving. When Vito came back, uh, he really sort of subtly challenged uh, Costello. Costello was in control because he was so influential in politics and uh, in the judicial system. Um, bosses and the other families came to him when they wanted a favor in the courts or they wanted a political favor. He was so powerful. So uh, he was looked upon as the most respected and probably one of the top leaders in New York. Vito resented that. Vito was back. Vito felt that he had lost out, that he should be the boss. There was a lot of bucks that had been made while he was gone that should come to him. Genovese was intimidated by Costello's intelligence. He knew that Costello could get with words what he could only get out of a gun. And he was jealous of that. The bottom line is the green-eyed monster. Jealousy. Period. Costello seemed to have the approval of everyone and was very popular. But Genovese noticed something. Costello preferred to deal only with the big guys, those at the top, but he ignored the little guys. Joe Coffey said that this was a mistake Genovese could readily exploit. Yeah, uh, Frank Costello neglected the troops. Frank Costello only concerned himself with the capos. And the capos, it's Italian for captain. They were in charge of each individual. It was set up like a paramilitary organization, the mob. The captains were the people who answered to the consigliere and the underboss and the boss. And the capos were the, as low as Costello would go. He wouldn't deal with the, did not like mixing with the peasants. Genovese, he knew that the people, the real underlings, the thugs, the murderers, the thieves, the rapists, whatever you want to call them, would listen to him. Members of crews that had been loyal, crews or these units that worked within each family, uh, complained. They had been neglected, that uh, Costello didn't favor them. So when there were big bucks to make, you know, he gave them to other crews, crews he considered more loyal to him. This resentment was Genovese's opportunity to begin undermining Costello's leadership. While Costello wined and dined with America's elites, he had forgotten to pay the respect deserved to the criminals who enabled his lifestyle. Frank Costello was starting to believe his own myth. Everybody knew that Genovese wanted Frank's job, but he couldn't take the job. The other bosses wouldn't have allowed that as long as Frank was riding high. Frank was the political fix. Frank had the connections. Genovese did not have the connections. Genovese was known as a drug dealer, and he was a target of the federal government. What does he do? 
he has to bide a little bit of his time. He can't come in and start a uh, massacre. So what he does is he begins to make sure he's strong, that his rackets are beginning to produce money. So he's, he has both money and he has soldiers and he has hitmen in case there's a real showdown. Not only was Costello popular, but his position as a boss in the new mafia structure under Luciano meant that Genovese couldn't just kill Costello. He would need permission from other mob bosses. So Genovese waited, hoping Costello would make a wrong move, and he wouldn't have to wait long. The first big uh, exposure that there might be an organized crime unit known as the Mafia occurred in the early 1950s when a senator from the state of Tennessee was trying to make a mark, trying to make, get, some notor get some publicity, uh, launched hearings. His name was Estes Kefova. He launched hearings into actually gambling big-time gambling in the big cities. Estes Kefover, an ambitious senator, decided to look into the world of crime and launched a series of public hearings. Kefover called on more than 600 gangsters, underworld figures, politicians, and policemen to testify before the Senate. Steve Pomerantz is a former assistant director of the FBI. Uh, I remember the Kefover investigations. I was a young, very young lad, and I remember actually watching those, and, and, and it was a real revelation uh, that we began to see that there was this, these people among us, uh, who, uh, criminals, who were very well organized and, 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 and uh, very deliberate in, what, in, in their activities, and controlled a great deal of the criminal activity in this country. The Kefauver hearings were, uh, were, were, were actually televised, and the American public and our leaders became aware that we had a problem that had existed in this country actually for a very long time. It had largely been underground and not, not, not visible, and the Kefauver hearings exposed who they were, uh, to some extent what, what, what they were doing, and the magnitude and harm that they were that they were causing American society. So people began to, to develop a, an interest in, in, in doing something about it. The Kefauver hearings, as they were called, were aired on television. It brought a lot of public attention to the underworld and attention to the fact that the law enforcement wasn't doing anything about these criminals. Many gangsters were called on as witnesses, but refused to say anything, except Frank Costello. Uh, it's interesting seeing that Frank Costello, the gangster, uh, on television like that. I think the reaction to Frank Costello, the gangster, uh, probably is much like the reaction to, uh, to, to, to John Gotti. I don't think it changed over time. People are clearly concerned about having somebody like that. And, 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 and I remember people saying, well, if he's a gangster like that, why isn't he in jail? What's the problem here? On the other hand, there's a certain attraction a certain glamour that, that, that was attached to Costello, and again, uh, through the years, attached itself to many of these organized crime figures, a kind of a, of a, of a Hollywood persona. But uh, the, I, I think it's fair to say that the, you know, your average responsible American was more concerned than they were attracted to Frank Costello. Costello still craved credibility from the political world and thought that having friends in high places would mean he would get through the hearings with his pride intact. The event billed him as the most influential underworld leader in America, and he became the star attraction. 
Now, all the other mobsters who were subpoenaed to testify took the Fifth Amendment, said nothing, or defied the subpoenas. He thought he could go on the witness stand and come out as a gentleman, as a real businessman, that he paid his taxes, stuff like that, and that he had this kind of outlook or outward appearance that he wouldn't look like a ruffian, like a hood, like a hoodlum. And he went before the committee, and it was embarrassing. The camera crews were only allowed to feature Costello's hands. His testimony became known as the hand ballet. He would only allow his hands to be photographed, so you had this picture of his hands jumping around, this gravelly voice appearing on TV without the face. It made him look terrible. Also, it threw the spotlight on him. And the uh, IRS went after him and the Justice Department. Now that he was in the spotlight, they had to do something. Whenever the questions about his criminal activities got tough or too near the knuckle, Costello would rub his palms together, tighten his fingers, grip a glass of water, drum on the table in front of him, or crumple and tear pieces of paper. Uh, what happened is when he was summoned before the Kefauver Committee uh, of the United States Senate, he assumed that he could get through the hearing successfully, partly because he had political friends, partly because he was a charming guy, and he was essentially saying, I'm just a gambler. I'm just a gambler. He kind of fooled himself toward the end. Costello was asked if he had ever done anything that would make him a good citizen. Uh, one of the questioners uh, said to him, Mr. Costello, what have you done for your country? I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he said, I pay my taxes. And that was his answer. Now, in his mind, he thought that was enough. He didn't think that he had to join the Army and the Marine Corps. I pay my taxes. Everybody pays their taxes, they're working for their country. That was his philosophy. Uh, that was Frank Costello. But he was the original superstar made by television. The questions were more rigorous than he had expected. And at some point, Costello simply walked out of the hearing, refusing to answer any more questions. The public exposure and embarrassing answers had destroyed some of Costello's public credibility and he left the Keefe of her committee hearings as the Justice Department's number one target. Costello had a lot of trouble with the federal government at the same time that the mob was mad at him. Once, once he failed at Kefauver, everybody went after him. Uh, and he was indicted for tax evasion, he was convicted, he was indicted for lying to Congress. Uh, as I would say, when you are the prime minister, the man who can work the miracles, and all of a sudden you fall off your horse and fall on your face, and get in all kinds of difficulties, you are not prime minister anymore. In one move, Costello had lost his popularity with the elite, with the mob, and had gotten himself arrested. But for one mobster, Costello's failure was good news. Vito Genovese. In the next episode, Genovese began to take the steps he needed to assassinate Costello. And it would start with more assassinations. Anastasia had become a problem. Uh, it was, he was bringing too much heat on because of Murder Incorporated and the situation that transpired after that with his uh, interference with uh, other mob activities, he had to go. And Costello's exposure on television was just the beginning the whole mob was about to be exposed, thanks to Genovese. I think Appalachian was more important, not so much for the country, but for the FBI. Um, 
all of a sudden, everything that they had been saying, that there was no national organization, um, that crime was essentially local and it was up for local law enforcement to deal with, um, became obviously incorrect um, for the FBI. I mean, if there was a moment where it was absolutely patently clear that they had a role to do that they had not been performing, that was it. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibengwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.